Hello and welcome to this Federalist Society webinar. This afternoon, June 7th, 2022, we discuss crypto wars, balancing privacy versus national security. My name is Ryan Lacey and I'm an Assistant Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinions are those of our experts on today's program. Today, we are fortunate to have an excellent panel moderated by Dina Ellis Rockkind, whom I will introduce briefly. Dina Ellis Rockhind is counsel in the Paul Hastings Government Affairs Practice in Washington, D.C. Ms. Rockhind represents clients in matters involving regulatory initiatives, policymaking and legislation, and enforcement actions. Prior to joining Paul Hastings, she served in various Capitol Hill offices and committees and as Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Treasury Department in the W. Bush administration. Prior to the Hill, Ms. Rockhind served as Vice President of Federal Government Affairs for a leading mortgage lending company. Ms. Rockhind is admitted to practice law in the District of Columbia and in Pennsylvania. After our speakers give their remarks, we will turn to you, the audience, for questions. If you have a question, please enter it into the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen, and we will handle questions as we can toward the end of today's program. With that, thank you for being with us today. Dina, the floor is yours. Ryan, thank you so much for that kind introduction, and um, I'm very happy to be here. We have an incredible panel before us. And um, I think we're, it's very timely to have this panel today. You know, first of all, we have the Lummis Gillibrand legislation uh, that has been introduced today. We have hearings in both the House Homeland Security Committee as well as the Senate Homeland Security on issues related to cryptocurrency. Um, we have the vote on the SEC commissioners and uh, Michael Barr for vice chair of supervision at the Fed going on. And we continue, I'm probably missing something because with crypto, the news moves um, very quickly, but we also have a lot of geopolitics going on um, in terms of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but also in terms of what we're seeing in, uh, in, uh, in Asia with uh, Taiwan and President Biden's visit, visit to um, Asia. So with that, I am going to first turn it over to um, to each of the panelists to introduce um, themselves um, before Mick makes his introduction. Um, you know, all of you probably know who he is as the former um, chief of staff at the White House and head of OMB and a congressman. But the thing that maybe met, some of you don't know is that he was, along with Jared Paulus from Colorado, um, he started the block, Congressional Blockchain Caucus um, before people were really thinking about, about this. So he was um, really a visionary um, in this space. Um, and I, also he is um, on uh, the board of Astro Protocol, um, you know, Astro Protocol um, Tech, um, which um, I know he made a lot of comments about really being um, particular about what kind of board he would serve on. So um, with that, I'm going to kick it off to each of the panelists to um, introduce themselves. Hey, uh, Dean, I guess I'll go first. Uh, yeah, thanks for that introduction. I don't know if I need to introduce myself. I'll tell a quick story about the forming the Blockchain Caucus. When Jared and I got together to do that, we were going to call it the, uh, the Bitcoin Caucus, but nobody besides us knew what that was. So we figured if we had a Bitcoin Caucus meeting, nobody would show up. Uh, so we ended up calling the Blockchain Caucus. I think I'm on record as saying I founded the, the, the Bitcoin Caucus, but I don't think that actually existed at the time. Um, that was when um, 
I think Bitcoin was $207. No, I didn't buy any of it. Although I bumped into one of my staffers last night in an event here in South Carolina who did buy it. And he drives a much nicer car than I do nowadays. Um, look, you, you hit the nail on the head. And I think one of the reasons that, that this, conference, this, this discussion is so timely is that blockchain crypto is moving so quickly um, from one, one area to another, almost into 15 different areas simultaneously. When we, you asked, as, they were, as we're doing prep for this, folks asked me, they said, well, you know what, uh, how are you dealing with, with crypto and, and, and national security at the beginning of the, of the Trump administration? The answer is we weren't. I and mean, people forget when Donald Trump took office, I think block, um, Bitcoin was probably 600 bucks. Um, a year later, it was 11,000 or something like that. So it, it, it moved so quickly. And we were focused on it mostly as, a, as, as its possible impact on the financial services uh, communities, on the finance industry, on markets, on consumer protection. We didn't even start to think about it, eh, at, least at least at the very highest levels. I know there was work going on behind the scenes. Uh, when it comes to national security, I think Ukraine, you hit the nail on the head, has, has dramatically sort of opened people's eyes to the to the overlap between between crypto and national security. I've heard rumors that there's 50 billion dollars worth of of, uh, of crypto uh, looking for a home right now in the in the Gulf in the, um, in the in the GCC countries. That there's people looking to unload this this coin to get around the sanctions and so forth. So um, blockchain was one thing yesterday. It's one other thing today. It'll be yet another thing tomorrow. And I look forward to uh, the discussion about how crypto and blockchain um, overlap with national security today. So I don't know if that was my whole four minutes. It probably wasn't, but there you go. Thank you. Um, Kathy, um, why don't you go next in terms of making your introduction? Thank you, Dina. Uh, fantastic to be with everybody here today and, and certainly my fellow panelists and former boss. Uh, we um, at Solidus Labs, I'm the Vice President of Regulatory Affairs. And I know you all have heard from me before uh, in my prior role as Director of the CFPB and uh, 20 plus years working in the US government across national security, financial services, uh, a lot of regulatory fronts. But my current job really takes a lot of that uh, together. And I joined this industry uh, being uh, really a service provider in the digital asset markets. Solidus Labs provides market surveillance and risk monitoring services to anyone exposed to the risk of trading in crypto. So uh, we've got clients who are exchanges, broker dealers, market makers, liquidity providers, um, anything digital asset markets, including DeFi across the globe. So our clients are really dealing with uh, the massive changes that Mick just talked about and, and Dina mentioned too, with how fast this industry moves, how fast this technology moves, and the regulators are trying to keep up with it. So certainly my conversations are really on that front, what makes sense in terms of industry standards, best practices, really trying to build market integrity to support the growth of this industry, um, and that's an exciting uh, place to be. I guess one observation I would make uh, carrying on what, what Mick had said already too, and, and what I know we'll talk about with this topic, is that law enforcement appropriately was the first ones really paying attention to blockchain, which is how you got fairly uh, developed, at least uh, in terms of what bespoke regulations look like on digital asset markets. Uh, around AML. Uh, that was a, a significant concern. Obviously, you see FATF 
guidance going back uh, almost a decade at this point, conversations again amongst law enforcement about what requirements should be in place. And so it's really that side of the equation uh, has been more robust. Um, and now moving forward, really a better focus, a deeper focus needs to be on that investor protection, consumer protection. Uh, so it is really only the last few years that we've been talking about that, but it makes sense given the size of the market and then the greater adoption that, that keeps happening. And certainly the war in Ukraine is something we will talk a lot about, but uh, it's flipping on its head a lot of things about the role of government uh, as I see it as well. So it becomes pretty interesting when you have individual uh, contributors from across the globe donating to support national defense of a country. Uh, that is a, a pretty big paradigm shift uh, for you know really one of the most fundamental responsibilities of government. Um, I'll just end uh, on, on Ukraine, but note too that I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Ukraine. Uh, it was formative years, 1997 to 1999, uh, amazing changes that that country uh, has come into its own as a democracy and now uh, clearly is fighting for its its uh, survival and existence. So it's a horrible thing to be to be talking about, but at least in terms of the dynamics of crypto, a lot of things that can be positive to help people's lives uh, across the globe and in Ukraine. No, this is a very important discussion. Um... I have a, a lot of, um, not business ties, but friendships with people from Ukraine. It has the third largest Jewish population in the world. And uh, a friend of mine actually was able to get out of Ukraine and um, is having a conference this week on international government affairs that I'm going to go to. So um, this is, uh, we're really at a, 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 this moment in history where this topic's very important. Michelle, I want to turn to you because um, you really have an incredible background in terms of law enforcement, and now you're on the other side, right? So you kind of have seen that, um, the tension between national security and privacy. And um, I think it makes a lot of sense, you know, I, you, you need to do your introduction, but um, you know, if you can speak to that a little bit as well, that would be great. Sure, uh, thanks Dina and uh, to the Federalist Society for inviting me to participate. Um, so interestingly, um, I think from the very beginning, I've been a proponent of this technology, um, despite the fact that my start was late 2012, 2013, as a, um, a prosecutor out in a U.S. attorney's office looking at drug trafficking on uh, the Silk Road um, and, you know, having an agent walk into my, my uh, office and say, there's this stuff called Bitcoin that's being used to pay for all of these illicit goods on the on the dark net. And uh, are you interested? And um, what was fascinating in, in the journey um, as far as my path in crypto and blockchain is that, um, you know, what was said earlier is correct, is that law enforcement was actually looking at this first. And for, I would say, most of the early folks that were um, actually, whether it's working on the darknet market stuff or later um, with ICO frauds and, and Ponzi schemes, um, never saying we need to ban this stuff or that this is bad technology, just realizing that it was a new way to kind of engage in financial activity um, and that, um, that uh, 
that we were going to see um, anytime you have an effective way to move value and to store value that you were actually going to have um, criminal elements adopting those technologies as well. And as has been said before, or often the, the early uh, uh, folks that actually adopt the technology. Um, but what we realized is that you can use that same technology in order to um, to chase those folks down, to get the evidence you need um, to, you know, prosecute bad activity um, because of the nature of the way it works. And, and I remember that, uh, you know, in the early days uh, when we had to do tracing, um, it, it was before in some cases, not for long, thankfully, um, that we didn't have the blockchain analytics companies, um, you know, up and running. And so, you know, you're chasing, you're, you're tracing transactions directly in a blockchain <laughs> explorer and not being able to use all the fabulous um, technology that actually I'm sure we'll talk about that, that, that we take for, we may take for granted now that didn't exist in the early days of these investigations. Um, and so, um, you know, what happened in, in front of me that was interesting is that they're really, you know, I got to see policy and, and law being made in front of me, um, participating in it um, from the very beginning, whether it's, you know, the first money laundering prosecutions of folks, or how does the Bank Secrecy Act apply to certain types of activities? Um, seeing that guidance um, come out um, from Treasury as one of the, the early regulators who actually, um, you know, put out some, some concrete information um, for the service providers to, to, to rely upon. And um, being able to, to build, uh, you know, uh, policies, uh, cases, um, in order to really separate out and be able to address those national security and illicit finance concerns, um, although they were happening in this new space. Um, and so did that at, at DOJ, um, at their criminal division uh, as Digital Currency Council for a number of years. Um, and then my last stop before being in private industry, um, I was the chief digital currency advisor at FinCEN um, and uh, got to see the, um, the beginnings of the executive order um, and the drafting and, and how that, that was, was thought out um, that I know we're gonna talk about a little we're bit later. We're gonna talk about that next. Might make sense yeah. to move on to Norbert. Um, so, you know, Norbert, um, you know, I wanna hear more of uh, your background, but also, Obviously, um, I heard, I remember the DEA saying, hey, we can, uh, it's a DEA agent say, this is Bitcoin is great for us. We can uh, catch criminals. But on the flip side, Norbert, like we had um, proposals um, coming out of this administration from the IRS uh, about reporting transactions that were over $600. My goodness, that's my like, uh, that's my grocery bill right now with inflation with my kids, right? Um, and you had what happened in Canada with people's, um, accounts being shut down. Um, that's just, that's some really like scary stuff. So give us some background on yourself and um, and then we're gonna start uh, talking a little bit briefly about the executive order and what it means and what it doesn't mean. Sure, thank you, Dina. Um, so uh, my name is Norbert Michel. I'm a vice president and director of the Cato Institute's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. 
And basically all that means is that uh, we advocate and create, create and advocate uh, for financial and monetary regulatory policies uh, that will expand individual freedom uh, throughout. And that's, that's kind of what we do. Um, I've been here since Cato since September. Previously, I spent about 10 years doing the same sort of thing at the Heritage Foundation. Um, but now I'm here at Cato. Um, Great. And, Go ahead. Okay. And uh, so, I mean, I listening to, uh, to Mitch, Kathy and Michelle, I don't, you know, I, I don't, I'm not surprised uh, what their take is right now. Um, and then I'm going to go just a slightly in a different way and, and just talk about the big picture here. I think the issue is that we should not be structuring any regulations to make it difficult to use any financial service or product because criminals might use it. Uh, and that's what many people are trying to do right now. And I'm not I'm not saying that my fellow panelists are advocating for that. I'm saying that that's what you see a lot of uh, in the administration, in, in the different agencies. Um, and I don't think that's a good approach. Um, we're not talking about things like plutonium and missile components, and there's no marginal difference between between being able to to perpetrate a crime or a terrorist act with those things if you're using dollars, euros, or cryptocurrency. If anything, it's easier to get away with it using national currencies, uh, as we've been pointing out here already. Um, so the real question is whether the existing security measures that we have make us safer. Um, and I think that after 9-11, and then again, now that you see Ukraine, uh, the invasion of Ukraine, uh, policymakers have started lumping all this AML, KYC stuff in with national security. And it really isn't at all clear to me that doing so is wise. Um, and I think the evidence suggests that those things are very different. I think the evidence also suggests that the AML KYC regime hasn't really been effective, at least not as it's advertised to be. And it's resulted in really little more than millions of useless reports uh, at a great expense to Americans in terms of both losing money and their constitutional rights, losing privacy. I don't see much of a balance. I see it slanted the other way. Um, so if we want to talk about the best approach to security, we should do that. If we want to talk about the best legal and regulatory framework for the financial industry, then we should do that. Um, but we probably need to look at these issues through different lenses. And I think my view here is simply that terrorism or criminal activity, those are problems that law enforcement should attack at their sources. And it shouldn't have anything to do with what method of payment someone is using in the sense that that shouldn't dictate how they do it. Um, even if Congress repealed the Bank Secrecy Act in its entirety, uh, it would still be illegal for a financial firm or anyone else to facilitate criminal activity. And no financial company wants to be responsible for help, helping terrorists blow up a building or helping a drug cartel set up a home base in America. So we should be asking questions like, is the Bank Secrecy Act the best way to stop criminal activity? What does the evidence say? Not just when it comes to crypto, but in general. Um, what does the BSA, what does the Bank Secrecy Act cost us in terms of both economic losses and the extent to which it has diminished our constitutional rights. And separately, what is the best regulatory framework for the payment sector? What fosters the most competition and innovation? I think that's the lens that we should be looking at this regulatory regime through. Um, I'll just stop and throw it back to you, Dina. Sure, so I, Norbert, when I listen to you, I'm kind of like when I, I worked in the Bush administration after 9-11, and um, 
I um, have very similar views to yours. I kind of wish I was at Cato versus maybe the administration <laughs> because I, uh, I uh, after 9-11, I saw a lot of proposals that went into the Patriarch. Some made sense, but some were just very onerous and didn't make sense. Um, but as you know, if you fight on national security, you've got to do it a very, um, you can do it from Cato, but in the government um, and in the private sector, you have to do it in a more strategic way, right? So um, with that, let's talk about the executive order and what it means and what it doesn't mean. You know, the one takeaway I have from the executive order is that it um, is very focused on national security and the and CDB and the dollar as reserve currency and that it really puts, uh, you know, Treasury and the Fed, which in a lot of ways are one and the same, into the driver's seat. And I think some of the approaches kind of like, if we don't have national security, then we may not have consumers or investors to protect. So it's very, there's a lot of focus on that in the report. Um, but let's talk about sort of what your thoughts are on the report and what's going to happen um, with the report. Um, Mick, should we start with you? Yeah, and I'll, maybe Kathy and I do this together because we used to write these things, right? And listen, let's take. Let me focus on the on the bad and let everybody else focus on the good, right? Well, I'll do a little bit of the good. It's great that this comes out. It's great because it gives you insight as to as to the way any administration is thinking. It's sort of what an executive order is. is this is important to us. We want everybody to know it's important to us. So yeah. Uh, we think Treasury and the Fed should be in the driver's seat, like you said. We, we think there's national security interests here. We think there's dollars reserve currency interest. It's sort of giving you some insight into how they're thinking. What it's not is uh, what it doesn't do is change anything. It, it, it's not an operative, an operational document. It doesn't change any law. It doesn't change any regulations. And it's really not binding. We say that it is, but we wrote a lot of executive orders that, you know, you, you tell Secretary of, uh, of State to do something. He's like, ah, I might get around to that. Maybe I won't. Um, it, it's not it's not the be all and end all. It's a really, really good first step. And I encourage people to understand that. And then that's just what it is. It's, it's the beginning of the conversation, not the end. Um, so in that sense, it's great that it's there. But I don't want people to look at this and say, well, this is this is great. This is exactly what we wanted. This is the end of the conversation. It is far from that. You may, it would be, it may take years um, to develop the, the regulatory framework. Certainly could take that to, to develop the legislative framework to back up sort of the outline that was laid out in the executive order. Kathy, what am I missing? You, you did this more than I did. Yeah, no, it's definitely a, a policy direction. I think that's, uh, and I completely agree with everything you said, Mick, and I'm, I'm going to make a, a play to tie it back to Norbert's point about, you know, what exactly are the goals we're talking about here with respect to what we're looking to do. And the one thing, too, about the executive order is really bringing to bear the full weight of the government, a whole, go whole of government approach. Whether everyone picks up what the president is putting down, you know, is always an interesting question. But, but then there are all kinds of agencies that have a little piece of this, particularly as you talk about the implications of blockchain technology on every sector of the economy, not just financial services. And that's that's acknowledged. And then you get back to again, what are the goals? Uh, it's not just national security and and preventing illicit finance. It is financial inclusion and consumer protection uh, and U.S. competitiveness, the impact of U.S. competitiveness in the global marketplace and, and protection of our own industry. You know, all of those values being laid out there. I think that the one other thing uh, that I'm, I'm trying and now I'm probably reaching to, to tie back to Norbert's point, but I'll at least say this. 
the entire regime that we put in place after 9-11, I think, skewed in the direction of really identity mattering more, perhaps, than even behavior. And I think that's something to assess in the financial system. That's something these reports give the agencies the opportunity to think about, look at what in traditional finance actually is working and is effective, how to apply that to digital assets. And I'm one of those advocates, frankly, who says this is not an unregulated space. It's in fact regulated. Again, as entities are looking at what business they want to employ, they look at whether you know what they're doing engages a security or a commodity or currency, they're, they're subject to current law. And same with the BSA AML requirements, they're subject to current law. So how should we change that? How, you know, what kinds of dimensions should be made specific to recognize the benefits and risks that come into play with digital assets specifically? The opportunity really to look at behavior first, perhaps, I offer uh, instead of just identity and and the cost and implications of of BSA KYC. I, I won't go as far as Norbert did, but there is a massive cost on this, and it becomes a check the box compliance exercise in many respects. That's a, more about liability protection than effectiveness. And so, thinking about how we do this um, for a new technology and take into account the transparency of blockchain transactions is really where uh, I think there's some opportunity again in the, in the reports and the reports will be worth the paper they're written on and and uh, who takes them from there. And I'd say, Michelle, oh, no. I know you have said, hey, Michelle, you were so involved in writing it too. Uh, we can kick it I to know, you. I, was gonna say, I think Michelle probably has some, uh, some, uh, some different thoughts, especially um, you know, working that many years in uh, law enforcement. So, and was involved with the drafting in, in part of this. So would love to hear what you have to say about it. Yeah, I think that what's interesting is that you have all these different agencies um, that actually, I think, jockeying for position as far as, you know, who is going to be the lead regulator on particular things um, and having the administration try to, you know, put everybody, um, you know, in the room to um, to have cohesive goals towards the, you know, administrative policy objectives um, that I would say the plus the pluses that I see from particularly from the perch where I am now uh, at a 16 Z crypto is that um, you know the report or the order actually um, says that each of these agencies as they're you know putting together their reports or their frameworks etc um, and making these determinations, it says that they need to be consulting with industry on these things, that they need to be working with their private industry partners. And so that was actually a plus and encouraging. We're hoping that in fact, um, that these won't just be, you know, book reports. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that, um, that, the actual, you know, staff within the agencies that are that are doing the the ground level work um, would actually, you know, wait for these ideas to come forward with consultation um, from industry um, prior to just pulling the trigger with, you know, array of um, regulation by enforcement, um, 
it's at, at rulemakings uh, that that don't give sufficient um, time to comment. Um, so we're really hoping. We think it's the spirit um, of the executive order to actually, you know, really talk to those um, entities that are running and building this, these technologies um, to have them as a part of the conversation. I think the one s small kind of thing that I would add as far as the negative um, is that you know, a lot of these agencies, and particularly the ones tasked with law enforcement and national security issues, are really, really taxed right now. Um, they do not have sufficient resources um, to do the work that they already have on their plates. Treasury hasn't been appropriated funds to deal with all the AMLA Act um, uh, requirements that they have. And now you're asking them to basically drop everything um, and, uh, and start writing more reports. So to the, to the extent that, you know, there needs to be, um, if this is going to be taken seriously by this administration, this, this ecosystem, then you need to have um, sufficient um, funding for those agencies that are responsible um, for important national security um, goals. Yeah, and I bet you we will see like little pockets um, in the National Defense Authorization Act in terms of the DOD and those other types of in, uh, intelligence agencies as well. Um, the one thing, and then we let's move on to sort of how the dynamic shift with the Russian invasion of Ukraine really changed the conversation. But the one thing I would say is, um, Nothing is going to stop Gary Gensler. Uh, the, all these reports that are required, you know, uh, he's independent and uh, has support from a lot of Democrats. So uh, you're going to can see, you know, more and more enforcement actions likely and and rulemakings coming out of there. Um, Dina, you are, if I, Dina, if I can jump in real quickly, I think that that that's one of the really the most important things I think about the Lummis Gillibrand piece of legislation that they dropped today was that it's again I'm not I've, I've read the summary that the digital chamber put out I've not read the bill yet and, uh, but what I'm reading is that it gives primacy to the SEC and the Fed so at least yeah you're right Ginsler's not going away but one of the nice things about the proposal in the legislation is that it's going to centralize regulation to a certain extent keep in mind without guidance I mean we Kathy and I were at CFPB where we we, we thought we had a piece of, of, of digital, sort of the OCC, sort of the CFTC. I mean, everybody thought they had a, had a, had a piece of it. So it's nice to, to sort of get guidance, not only for the administration as to where they think that, that the leadership should come, but also from the Hill. Sorry to interrupt. No, I, I think that I agree with you. The Lomas Gillibrand bill is really important. It's bipartisan. It does try to set who's going to do what. Uh, it's, a, it's a good, um, it's a discussion piece, right, that gets people talking about it. But I think, you know, uh, that continued bureaucratic infighting between SEC, CFTC, the banking agencies will continue. And, you know, to be honest, as someone who worked most of my, a big chunk of my career on house financial services and Senate banking, um, this is a sort of even a bipartisan thing. You're never like too thrilled about handing over your jurisdiction to the Ag Committee or to the Commerce Committee, right? So there, there are, you know, when you go up there, you can see that tension of the notion of, you know, giving like 70% or more of the market to the ag committees. So it'll be interesting to see, but I think it's a very important development for sure. Um, let's move on to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and how that um, reshaped the policy discussion and how the industry has handled that, uh, what they've done 
um, right and what they've done, um, what they could have done sort of better on um, in terms of um, messaging during um, what, what we're seeing in Ukraine. I know back when you go back in 2017 and before, um, there were some in industry who were opposing almost everything when it came to KYC and AML. Obviously, that has changed. Um, people have realized that it's not an easy, it's not a winning battle. Um, so, um, who would like to take that question? I'm happy to jump in real quick first. Sure. Um, so one of the things that I saw was that we actually were getting very consistent messaging from both inside government for those who actually were on the ground working on these things and from industry when there were, you know, some blanket and conclusory statements kind of thrown out there that, oh, well, you know, Russia's going to use crypto to evade sanctions, et cetera. And um, I, I thought that was very interesting that we had, you know, the same rebuff from both senior officials at Treasury, um, as well as, you know, the, the folks in industry um, that would normally be talking on these topics um, to say, you know, no, there's not the liquidity and the infrastructure set up. You can't just flip a switch and convert, um, you know, uh, convert to a, a total economic activity um, in crypto. Um, and in fact, you know, you still need those fiat on and off ramps and, and all of those um, entities, you know, are going to be monitoring for um, for the uh, for sanctions and, and blocking the transactions. And so, in fact, um, this whole idea about this um, is actually not based in in reality. Um, and so that was, I think, interesting to see, you know, th those, um, you know, not that they're opposing factions, but often that you have, you know, government in the national security perspective taking a different view than maybe um, industry might. Um, but in fact, um, you know, had a consistent um, voice that, in fact, um, that wasn't the risk that was was being argued. And then I'm, I'm sure some of the other panelists can talk about all the pluses um, with with Ukraine and actually getting in uh, crypto for humanitarian efforts um, related to that. I know Kathy was talking about that in her her uh, uh, intro. That'd be great. Kathy, can you comment? Sure. Uh, in terms of taking what, what Michelle said, I, I completely agree. Uh, very encouraging to see law enforcement and national security space echoing what, what is the reality, uh, frankly, in terms of uh, whether or not crypto can be, could be used uh, in a more pervasive way than, than traditional financial mechanisms for money laundering. It's just not, uh, one, it's not possible now. Uh, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do uh, all of the things that that were just done, as as Michelle noted, and and industry has been doing. You know what's what is required of them on that front. I think it's it is um, uh, exciting to see again the the uh, really contributions from across the globe uh, going to humanitarian assistance to um, you know really frankly all all kinds of causes, whether that's through. Uh, again, pay, payment uh, apps across the board and fintech uses and, and uh, wire transfers and everything, uh, but the ability to put uh, crypto to use immediately and, and, and the ability to, to really send that in, it, it has been 
demonstrated it. Certainly the Ukrainian government has highlighted that, uh, set that up uh, really pretty much right away and was able to put those funds to use. Uh, it's it's pretty amazing in terms of, of the transition that's happened there. Um, but I, I would note just it, it's been an interesting lesson, I suppose. And I, I know academics are going to do a lot. And I'll, I'll look at Norbert too to say he needs to do a lot more to study uh, everything uh, post this, which hopefully results in a free Ukraine. Uh, but but post this in terms of the role of government, as I said, the role of private industry, uh, the the pressure exerted on private companies. I mean, I'm, I'm grappling with this. This is a classic kind of, I suppose, federal, federal society conversation. It's one thing, of course, to uh, demand that financial institutions comply with sanctions law or to prosecute them when they don't. Uh, that's absolute. They're required to do that. But there are a lot of other dimensions to this that are playing out in more of a reputational risk question uh, that I think just raise a lot of interesting questions. Um, I don't know how I feel about them. I already started out. I know, you know, it's uh, this is one of those, I think, few black and white policy questions because of course I'm on the side of Ukraine and so is everyone on this call. But but the conversation of thinking about what it means and what it means to the Russian people and what you know what uh, responsibilities and, and what corporations have made in terms of their decision making about where they'll continue to do business and why and how they explain that uh, and what individual consumers across the globe are are involved in. You know, it, it is um, interesting. A lot of those dimensions have fueled crypto adoption too. You know, people who are saying, you know, I don't know that I want to be in the middle of this question of what role government has. Um, I want control over, you know, my own uh, my own money, so to speak, and my own uh, ability to, you know, to control that. Which I know there are some questions we might not get to on on. Uh, unhosted, or I'll call them personal wallets. But again, the ability to hold, hold your own money uh, is is something that uh, is is the appeal I know early on of crypto. And this yeah, is yeah, you're right in terms of um, a lot of these were political decisions, right? Versus legal, you know, you comply with the sanctions, but companies like Exxon, Visa, McDonald's, like they, you know, it's a political. It's more of a government affairs, right? Decision versus a legal question about whether you move out of Russia. Um, one thing that I thought about a lot, maybe it's not quite there yet, but was the humanitarian aid that we send um, or other NGOs send to the extent that smart contracts are more um, advanced, we can make sure that the funds get to exactly who they're supposed to go to and that they're spent in the way that we want them. And I kept thinking this is really the beginning of the, that kind of development. And Dana, this is kind of so I, I do know exactly how I feel, uh, as Kathy might suspect, on, on this issue. Uh, you know, you a law abiding citizen should be able to conduct an anonymous transaction. I have some cash in my wallet. And if I go buy something with that today, I, that shouldn't be regulated. There's no problem. I'm not doing anything uh, illegal or illicit. And, and, and unless I am, there's there should be no issue. And it should be exactly the same with crypto. Um, these are these are people that are trying to preserve their wealth and their money um, unsurveilled and unmolested by a government. And that should be the default principle as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and this is all of this is just highlighting how political it's been. The encouraging part that, like Michelle has said, I think I, I agree. You did have Treasury officials coming out right away saying, no, 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 no. That, this is not you're not going to get around sanctions by selling a Russian yacht 
and you know and moving crypto like that's not going to happen um so so that's good you can go back though with the aml stuff the kyc stuff years ago long before the invasion uh, one particular problem due to other russian sanction type issues is that americans who uh or russian americans people living here for a long time from russia people who are citizens American citizens who were formerly Russian citizens having their bank accounts, Citibank, gold cards, platinum cards, shut down simply because they were Russian, um, and like and that's where all of this has gone. So that again, that's where I keep coming back to. That's what needs to change. Yeah, so I think let's talk more about privacy and also um, central bank digital currency because I think they they dovetail with one another, right? So. Because the blockchain is, you know, tra is transparent, and you can see all sorts of different types of transactions. Um, what's the? I mean, there's no correct answer to this because we have, um, you know, we could have. You see this discussion going on in right in big tech, so you could start having a lot of data available um, about, you know, individuals in America, um, or you know, look at China with central bank digital currency. Um, you know, they're purportedly using it for um, surveillance and control. Um, so, I mean, what is the, you know, what is the right balance here? And I know there's not one answer to this. And um, maybe some folks can talk about Web3 and um, digital and identity and how that um, plays into this. And then just uh, lastly, when you think about you know, unhosted wallets versus hosted wallets in the um, in the notion of, you know, maybe you would have a, a hosted wallet where they do KYC and then you have another one that's unhosted where you could keep, you know, crypto as like, like it would be an electronic dollar essentially or digital dollar. Can you really ever get the privacy that you have when it comes to um, paper money? Um, so what, what's the answer? I've, I've always been taught if I put something on the internet, it's permanent, right? Um, so I, I know that's a, I'm sort of as, asking you philosophical questions. So um, can no, you- No, you're not, Dina. It, it's, it's the practical question, right? Uh, and I'll, I'll go first and a, and a full disclaimer, because uh, I am on the board of the Astra Protocol, but this is the reason I got involved as companies that speaks to this point, which I think is the big issue in the industry. Um, by the way, we don't call them unhosted wallets anymore. We call them personal wallets. Um, okay. Always <laughs> changing terminology. Exactly right. Um, look, Norman. Norman said something interesting. He said law-abiding citizens should be able to engage in anonymous transactions if they if they if they want to. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. And most folks in this who are in this community would agree with that. But I don't need it. Um, and there are ways, and it's one of the things that Astra actually does to de-anonymize so that you can meet KYC and AML, which is what's preventing this technology from really going mainstream. Yes, there are times when I want to be anonymous. That's fine. There's times when I want to use cash. There's times when I don't want to know people. But I don't mind them knowing that I, you know, th that someone knowing that I'm going to the to the grocery store to buy chicken. That that that's not the type of thing that uh, that I need to be anonymous. And I might choose crypto uh, for ease of use, for store of wealth, for reasons other than anonymity. And that I think is is the next level here. Um, you're going to get to the point. You, you, you talked about Web 3.0. 
yes, we, we, we can go to that sort of deregulated, decentralized um, type of model, but you're always going to have KYC and you're always going to have AML. You just are. I agreed with I agree with Cato that, look, it'd be really nice if it wasn't around. It probably doesn't do very much, but it's going to stay. Politicians, lawmakers are, are going to leave it in place because in their minds, they're at least doing something. And keep in mind, politicians love to say they're doing something, even if it doesn't really do anything. So the question then is, if that's part of the environment going forward, how does blockchain mature and become mainstream? And the de-anonymization, by the way, when you de-anonymize, so it doesn't mean you have to make it public. It just means you've got a record of it and your bank has a record of it. And it's private between you, but at least the bank knows who you are and can satisfy all those requirements. I think that's the next thing in the industry. It's going to address a lot of the issues that you talk that everybody's talked about here today in terms of uh, how do we get to the point where we've got the benefits of this without the risks, where we don't have to deal with politicians who say, oh, it's only Russian money launderers who are using this. Um, this is the type of stuff that use illicit behavior. This is what they use in the colonial pipeline hack, even though we got more than half the money back, which we would not have gotten if it was in cash. Um, that's, that's, I think, the next piece of this, uh, of this environment uh, on the way to Web 3.0. Sorry for the preaching. No, that was fantastic. I mean, that was like that. I agree with everything that you said. Um, that was incredible. And probably most everyone else, um, maybe Norbert doesn't agree as much because of, uh, you're right, you can't get around the AML and the KYC. But on, but the, it, on the privacy point, right? I can I can voluntarily choose to give that up. And I think Kata, and I know Kata would support that, right? They, they do. That's why I make an individual choice to say, look, in this particular circumstance, I want to be able to use Citibank. I want to be able to use crypto at the gas station. I want the benefits of this. I am willing under those in those conditions to give up a little bit of my anonymity and at least tell the bank who I am. And now that opens up a world of opportunity that doesn't exist right now. I, 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 I want to make sure we get into because when well, you start talking about privacy um, and you start talking about you know the topic we're in, it leads you into the discussion about central bank digital currency and what that looks like and how much will the government like know about your activities. Yeah. Obviously, the private sector can share your activities, right? But the, once the <laughs> government has your, um, go ahead, yeah. Norbert. But I mean, that, that's, that's kind of the issue. I mean, if we're going to, if we say we're always going to have some kind of AML and KYC, okay, fine, but it doesn't have to be what we have now. And if you do use the Fourth Amendment as the balance, that the balancing factor here, then you could have a, a KYC regime, just for example, uh, where banks and financial institutions do have that information and they do guard it as best as possible and nothing's flawless, but they do. And that in that sense, it is private and the government doesn't gain access to that without a warrant. That's very different from what we have now, but that would be private and it would increase privacy compared to what we have now. And when you go to a central bank digital currency, then you absolutely blow through the fourth amendment unless you give them an exemption from all of that stuff. So they, they would literally have that database um, in some form or fashion. And that's incredibly problematic, uh, aside from the fact that they would be competing with the private sector to provide financial services, and they would be doing so as the only one, the only provider that could do so without any liquidity risk uh, and any credit risk. And that is, again, a terrible, uh, a terrible way to, a terrible road to go down, I'm sorry. 
I think that gets back to the structure of what the CBDC actually looks like. And, and uh, I, I, there are conversations obviously happening here and uh, president's working group and, and the federal reserves report and, and uh, continued study on the topic. But uh, my hope certainly, and I can't remember where we said this, if it was at a prep or, or one of uh, Dina's prep questions too, but it, it, it really does get to, you know, why is the U.S. Uh, economy the envy of the world? What are some of the features that we have? And it really is what Norbert just touched on, the role of the private sector in, in innovation and in really that retail level um, engagement and activity in our credit system and everything else that, that really uh, makes us uh, fairly unique and meant the rest of the world actually was looking to us in building that. Um, and so in the role of a CBDC, if it ends up being retail, then we're, we're basically to the level of all the conversations that uh, many of us have concerns about with uh, what what future role of the post office could be, bringing in something that Mick and I spent a lot of time on. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think of like the VA yeah. system, all the government, like the Fed being people's banks. Can you imagine? Uh, so a, a wholesale CBDC, again, it, it's part of the interbank system as part of really, again, that extension of the Federal Reserve's monetary policy and roles uh, that, that it currently has, uh, that, that makes more sense to me. And, and again, we don't want to go down the road of the digital one and, and what uh, China is certainly impl implementing, which is being you know, in the middle of everyone's lives uh, in China and being able to track all the things that would give, uh, I, I would say nearly all Americans uh, a much pause. I think you get social scores. I believe you get like a social score um, depending on your activities. Can you imagine? They would look at, I would fail if, I, if everyone was looking at my groceries in China, I would definitely be low on the social score with the junk that we bring into this house. Um, anyway, I digress. Um, so, yeah, I mean, CDBDC can mean different things to different people. We have Fedwire, we have FedACH, we have FedNow, right? But um, people trust the dollar because of our government, our legal system. I know we're litigious, but I think the point about the private sector is, I hope, is that going to get lost about the, the power of the payment systems and maybe more competition than the payment rails? That's right. And I, I think that... Um, you know, it, it goes to the core of the entrepreneurial um, and and competition to cre to create the best products here in the United States. Um, and you know, it, it's contrary to the idea that that you would you know push everything in in one government controlled um, type of system. Um, just to go back to to one point that we discussed, um, you know, I think I'm in agreement with some of the members of the, the panel about the fact that, you know, regardless of how you may feel about it, that KYC ain't going anywhere. Um, but there are, you know, new technologies that are being developed, um, I think, you know, to protect privacy, but still meet those needs, for example. Um, the, the concept of digital identity where maybe you're using zero knowledge proofs and for those in the audience um, that may not be familiar, that's where you're, it's cryptography where you're, you have one party is going to prove to another party a certain truth without re revealing additional information um, or the statement. So an example of this in a very basic term might be something that you have on your phone that proves that you're 21 to be able to buy alcohol, but it doesn't give your date of birth. Um, so 
the liquor store doesn't need to know what your data. They don't need your license, right? They don't need your license. They don't need your license. Exactly. They don't need your credit card. So exactly. So that's what that is. I think you know another example of how giving um, industry and the builders here in America some runway to be able to actually work on these things. They're going to come up with actually, um, you know, better alternatives uh, to address, you know, what the needs are of, of law enforcement and national security, but trying to preserve privacy in a way um, that's maybe better than the current system. So I wanna make sure, there are two things I wanna make sure we're getting towards the end. And of course this went very fast because we have um, great, it's a broad topic. We have a great group of speakers. So um, I wanna make sure that we sort of end on kind of where are things going? You know, I mean, we have the legislation, but then we've got the agencies all over the place. We've got, you know, all these hearings. There's something new every day. There are rumors about the bank regulators and capital standards and, Sort of, I want to make sure we like end on kind of what the next steps are and how um, maybe some of it's about Congress flipping or like what's going on with the in the court system. But I would be I would be breaking protocol if we did not answer Bert um, Ely's question. Like I, I I would be considered a fa uh, a Federalist Society Federalist Society failure. So let me read it real quick. Um, you know, um, what concerns do you have about a, a stable coin causing the systemic crisis? Um, how should stable coins be regulated? And if so, by whom? Given the similarity between stable coins and money market funds, uh, commitment not to break the book, should the SEC, the regulators of MMS, be designated the stable coin regulator? That's a very long question. Uh, we might not be able to answer all of that. Does anyone have any like quick thoughts? Yeah, short answer. They're too small to worry about right now. They're going to go through some boom and bust. They're going to work it through. I think, for example, what happened with Terra the other day is just says, okay, maybe algorithmic stable coins are not the right approach. This is this is an, an evolutionary process. I personally am not concerned about this being a systemic risk uh, to the United States financial system. Yeah, my, my my quick answer would be functional regulation, and uh, the SEC created the money market fund back in the seventies. Uh, it, it was a creation. Um, so if it's a payment system, treat it like a payment, you know, it doesn't, uh, but right now it's, it's regulated by the states, but probably needs some federal involvement, um, but not treated differently just because of the technology. But that's a big, that's a long question. So that, I want all the panelists to talk about kind of next steps, you know, looking into your, like, it's a difficult landscape, right? That we have a positive in the legislation being introduced as a discussion piece, but we also have sort of this regulatory onslaught. We've got stuff going on in Europe with Mika. So I throw it out to you. Um, what should we do? Where do we go? Closing thoughts. I'll, I'll, I'll throw one thing out because we didn't get into US competitiveness much other than just briefly mentioning it. And I think it is, no, I, I don't see a, a massive you know, number of companies that are you know, running away from US shores. Uh, at the same time, it's something that uh, really does need to be carefully considered. And as we look at really what's going to be at least another year where all of the regulation in the U.S. is driven by enforcement action, that we we should be cautious of that. And, and I was certainly encouraged to see that in the EO, encouraged to see Commerce Department really try to engage industry to look at the implications on that front. And 
Um, and, you know, it's one, one benefit of having different agencies. I saw one question about this, different agencies that have different perspectives and they bring that to the policy table. Um, so hopefully there's some balance there too. And that does exert some pressure on the independent agencies. I'm a bit pessimistic. Final, final sort of thoughts. Where are we going? I, I'm just, I'm a bit pessimistic for the near term. I uh, maybe, maybe more pessimistic than everyone else on the order. I see sort of like a marketing document saying, let the Fed do what they want, let the let the SEC do what they want. And I don't think those things are very good. Um, so I, I don't think we should be doing more regulation. I don't think we should be doing more bank-like regulation. Um, I think that there are, the, the it is sort of broad. Uh, I think it's a mistake to say it's one thing because there are many different types of crypto uh, in many different applications. And I think they need to be looked at individually, but in general, the default position needs to be, okay, is there a market failure? Why are we regulating this? And then figure out what we want to do. Uh, but I don't think that's going to happen right now. Yeah, the worst I, thing would be if we have more regulation on top of a new technology, just because of a new technology than we have under existing law, right? That would be a very bad outcome. Um, Mick. Final thoughts or yeah, crypto, crypto and blockchain well uh, related, closely related, not the same thing. Um, the, I think I'm extraordinarily optimistic for the future of blockchain. I think five years from now, it'll be used in 90% of households. You won't even know you're using it. You will clear transactions through blockchain without realizing it. The technology is just too good. Uh, and moving from mostly three-party transactions to mostly two-party transactions is such an efficiency that the, the private... Uh, industry and private marketplace is going to figure out a way to use it as soon as they figure out a way to deal with the government oversight. Michelle, what about you? Yeah, um, I would echo the thoughts of my um, managing partner, Chris Dixon, that I think we're in the golden age. I think we're seeing, seeing a lot of um, interesting projects and in building. Um, and I'm very um, positive about where this is going to go, similar to what Nick said. The one thing that I think we may see in the near future that we haven't seen much of is fighting back. I think there's going to be litigation. That's that's my my. Yes, yeah, so uh, we have to, we have guess. two minutes left. So there's two things. You know, you could have Congress flip. That could change the dynamic. That would keep uh, the SEC very busy with lots of oversight hearings, right? Um, versus writing writing regs, right? But then you also have um, in the courts this movement. I mean, the courts, especially the Fifth Circuit, have been you know, saying, you know, the agencies are um, moving outside of their authority um, and things that are unconstitutional. Uh, so, you know, I usually don't, I'm a lawyer, I'm at a law firm, you know, but I usually don't think litigation is the answer. But um, what are our thoughts? Is, is, what do you think about that? Should we, uh, about Congress or litigation or um, those types of uh, fight, fighting back, ways of fighting back? Obviously, there's lobbying you can do. I'd be great if Congress would act, but I don't. I don't see that happening uh, anytime soon. And I think what the SEC is doing is, from a legal standpoint, it's going to be a mess. You're going to have challenges all over the place. Uh, so, again, not pessimistic for the near term. You know, I'll finish where, I'll finish where I I'll finish where I started, which is that's why the Lummis bill is so important. By the way, I misspoke. I said the Lummis bill deals it gave the oversight to SEC and the Fed. I think it yeah, was primarily yeah. to CFTC. Uh, but having it in that one place is going to is going to be is going to be better. But that that bill 
again, not going to come, not going to be coming to law, but it's a, it is a watershed moment in the relationship between Washington, D.C. and this new industry. Great Agreed. place to close, I think, from here. And I want to thank everyone. I think this was a phenomenal panel, and it was an honor to be, um, to have, to work with all of you. And thank you, Ryan, for putting this together. Yeah, absolutely. On behalf of the Federalist Society, I would like to thank our experts for their, their time and expertise today. And I want to thank our audience for joining us and participating. We welcome listener feedback by email at info at fed-soc.org. And as always, keep an eye on our, our website and your emails for announcements about upcoming webinars and other events. Thank you for joining us today. We are adjourned.